let a thousand kids try a bunch of things and see which ones start to work and then figure out how you're going to do your take on it, your better version of it, your mix of a couple genres, not letting people around you tell you what to mix. But like, I am not a believer in the blank page. I'm not a believer. It's just because someone has a good idea, bet it all and go do that. I think you've got to be much more, I think much more cold-blooded than that. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Katie Couple, and I'm joined by Brett Novak, Liquid and Grits CEO. And we had the chance to speak with Bill Mooney, who was the former studio vice president of Zynga from 2008 to 2012, leading Farmville, Zynga Poker, Mafia Wars, and other apps during their peak DAU numbers. He is currently the CEO at Proteus Games, a new venture in mobile gaming. Today, we ask what makes a game stand out from the pack and how to know a good bet when you see it. How do you find new strategic opportunities in the gaming space and have the wherewithal to follow through? Bill speaks to the importance of curiosity when confronted with trends you don't understand, how to stick to a vision without partners, colleagues, and peers diluting it, why we can't get enough of TikTok's extremely niche content, Roblox, and much, much more on this episode of Creators at Work. So let's talk about Roblox. So the thing about Roblox that's interesting is everybody's always sort of wondered for the last, I don't know, 25 years in consumer internet, if you let people create UGC, would any of it be any good? And the answer for Roblox is, you know, when I was there, there were something like 50 million monthly users a million people had made at least a basic level. And of those, probably 40 people could make stuff that other people liked. It was deep concentration. And these were kids, but who could actually make stuff? And now the platform has grown up, but it's still, a, it's a vanishingly small percentage for an audience that, you know, kids making games for kids is relatively forgiving of stuff like production value, but making something that was fun and compelling was small. So when you see stuff like Manticore and other companies, I mean, Roblox has 17 years of developing that. And I think it's very difficult to compete with that because, I mean, they're hiring people. They've been hiring people for the last six years who grew up playing their platform. So it's this truly sort of independent ecosystem. And I, I don't know the exact number now, but 75 or 80% was coming from the web. So although Apple and uh, Google are very important to them, they're akin to Epic in that they don't have to have those platforms in the way that the rest of game companies do. But fundamentally, in terms of valuation, if you look at it, the reality is EA pays high royalties on its best stuff. I don't know what the exact number is. I believe EA still is near break even or a slight loss leader on the NFL. And I believe they actually have to pay ESPN for it. So the thing with EA is that model has always been go out and get somebody's best IP and make somewhere between a competent and a very good game. And then go buy game makers in obvious genres at a premium. So it's a very stable model and it reduces a lot of sort of creative risk, but the reality is the margins are fairly poor. The game I created, helped create at EA was Galaxy of Heroes and the game has been a huge success, but the economics on it are problematic, right? I mean, I don't know what the exact number was, but I used to sort of shorthand it as EA would get a dollar, the platforms would get a dollar and LucasArts or LucasFilm would get a dollar. Right. And that's not bad. But then EA's, you know, not only paying for the right to make the game and spending all the UA, but that's not that great a model. Whereas with Roblox, they, I suppose, have to pay the platform, but they're just their economics are so much better. And their content, you know, those are kids who literally have grown up bonded to the platform. And even though having familiarity with it, coming back to it is it has a lot of subtleties. But I really think the thing with it is, I mean, the only equivalent is Minecraft. And the difference is 
that Roblox ultimately, there are lots of games like Minecraft, but they've just captured the great majority of kids. So I, I'm, let's put it this way. I'm glad that I had the shares that I did in Roblox versus the shares in EA. And I'm still holding a big chunk of Roblox because I am bullish on it long-term. I'm bullish enough that I'm spending my own money making games for it as well. But yeah, I mean, it is the one, I mean, it and Epic are the two things that have such footprint that they are not reliant on other people's platforms. And you see it, Epic, you know, basically fighting hard with Google and just telling Apple that it wasn't going to play. And Roblox, you know, I mean, obviously the, the huge explosive growth on the platform, as I understand it, I know it was because they went into mobile. And that's where all the girls came. Because when I was there, it was like 80, 20 boys and girls. And then once they were on mobile, it's more like 50, 50. All these numbers are, I'm sure, readily available elsewhere. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's a fascinating platform. And it's a really slow burn. I mean, it's a 17-year-old company. I, that's the one thing that's super interesting about, well, one of the things about Roblox is how old it is. And right. I think in just in general, the game industry from the outside, everyone said it's hits-driven, it's hits-driven, it's flash-in-the-pan type business. But I think that rhetoric's just got to go away, right? I mean, Roblox is a perfect example of it. Even Zynga and King and Supercell, these, these companies are relatively old at this point that... It's really not. I mean, this is established business where the companies that have been around that have strategic advantages do well. And the other thing that's interesting about it is UGC, which you touched on. And I was talking to a relatively big company in the market recently about UGC. And I can remember the conversation clearly because I got back, well, it's really hard. And we have a motto at Liquid and Grit that hard is good. I mean, yeah, if it's, it's hard for you, it's hard for someone else. Exactly. And I think that too many companies in gaming don't really have a strategic advantage. Pink has drilled this into what's your unfair advantage, right? Exactly. That was, his, that was he hammered that. I mean, that was one of the most important lessons from Zynga that I learned. I can tell you my own thesis actually applied to Roblox and to Zynga and then to skills. And it's turned out to be a very good market thesis. Even Chirp Me, the other startup I, I was at, although it was dating, was similar, which is I love stuff. I love it when I hear somebody in the traditional games industry go, oh, there's all those people playing it, but it's not a game. That just makes me happy, right? That's just, I just see dollar signs, an opportunity and fun in sort of taking a contrarian position to that. It's sort of like the, those are black swans sort of mixing in bad business terms. I love it. Nothing makes me happier than some 35-year-old hardcore gamer being like, Roblox is crap. That's not a game. Farmville sucks. It's not a game. This stuff is garbage. I just love that. And when I hear that, I instantly, instantly move towards it. I mean, I went to Roblox for that reason because it was the same thesis as Zynga, right? I remember when I first had that interview at Zynga, you know, I was talking to a buddy, somebody who recruited a bunch of us, and he was telling me how many people were playing it and that they were making money on poker, went for hype with them on a Saturday, spent Sunday doing research, interviewed on Monday, accepted the job 15 minutes in and started two weeks later, which is as fast as I could humanly get out of my current job. I waited till my boss was back, finished two weeks later on a Wednesday and started Zynga on a Thursday, just because the opportunity was there. And Roblox, it was a no brainer, but it was just like, here's 50 million kids playing, they're buying on the web. Everybody in traditional gaming thinks they suck, but they've got 50 million kids and they're making money. Plus if you have kids, I mean, the market research, I have three boys and I mean, I love when I tell them that they're gonna watch TV, and mm -hmm. I, this is exactly how they respond. Ah, and then another one in the back goes, boring. Dude, I'm bored. Literally how, much, how, how much linear TV do you watch anymore? 
I haven't watched TV in a year and a half. I agree when I hear from finance guys, it makes no sense. That's just illogical. I'm like, ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. It's like- I mean, I used to joke at Farnville, I actually got in trouble from somebody for saying it is, my joke was that at Zynga, our mission was to turn your mom into a hardcore gamer. And, you know, I think the, if I were going to give Roblox a line, it would be, you know, help your kid be a superstar game dev. Because I remember when I was there, you know, Dave, and this is entirely to his credit, because we were all like, what the heck are you thinking? He's like, let's start giving the kids who make the game some money. And Dave has a very particular way of looking at it. He sees it as a platform, et cetera. Like he had a very different take. And we're like, uh, okay. And then like six months later, there was some 13-year-old in Lithuania who was we paid him like a million bucks because he made a great game, right? And I think Adopt Me, which is the biggest game on the platform. And did you know this? Like at Zynga, half the things that turned out to work out great were one of 10 ideas and you just try it. Like what you're not like, right. this is going to be the next big thing. But today's credit, paying the kids, you know, it just unlocked this whole thing. I think that model in general is the future for a lot of different platforms. I mean, I'm a hardcore YouTube premium subscriber. I, mm -hmm. I haven't watched TV partly because of, the fact that I just watch YouTube premium and I get no ads. I pay $15.99 a month mm -hmm. and I have the best content about the most random shit that I love. I'm surprised you still watch YouTube. I used to love it and not just watch TikTok. <laughs> TikTok's <laughs> like YouTube concentrate, right? Yeah. Because you can watch for a minute and you can tell people a lot in a minute. And it's mm -hmm. boring in a minute. Katie, are you TikTok? Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah. Just open up. Are you a TikToker? TikTok okay. I love TikTok. Well, there's like so many levels to it. One, there's like the meme dialogue between you and like a group of friends. Two, there is the deep dive informational stuff. And three, the barrier to entry is do you have a phone? 100%. They, you can't even do high production value stuff almost. And so it's this great leveling that has created, kind of like Vine did way back then, this new language that everyone is down 100%. with. And then how do you get creative within the boundaries of this one thing? And you realize that when you give people limitations, that is when their creativity 100%. really shines through. Yeah. And I really it's think that is the same principle. thing yeah. with Roblox. Well, and I yeah. can give you insight. Uh, our understanding Please do. own metrics is the sessions are like five or six minutes long. They're really short on Roblox. Kids jump around. I forget the exact number. And some games they play with their friends and some games, uh, a friend of mine who still works there, calls it digital recess. And obviously that's been very appealing in the last year and a half. Um, but I do want to come back to TikTok because Katie, I'm with you all the way. And like, you know, I try all the platforms and if I like it, I'll use it. And if I don't, I don't care. Like Instagram, I never, it never clicked for me. But like with TikTok, the other thing that's fascinating is the nichiest things can find an audience. Like there's one guy, my sister put him on to me. I love it. It's a great channel. And listen to how weird this is. It's a dude who does comedy dressed up as like a medieval peasant. The channel's called like Greedy Peasant. Great. <laughs> are him taking like dark ages icons of like saints and having them do like really trashy gossip about each other. It's hilarious. I could not have imagined this guy finding an audience. I mean, I couldn't think of anything more niche. And this dude has a couple hundred thousand followers. There is so much information overload that we already get that you kind of have to find an island niche that you can hold on to mm -hmm. because there's a lot of identity coupled in with what you consume. And so once you find those really niche, really unique areas or things that you didn't realize you love, but now you do, you know, it's not like this Kim Kardashian Instagram swath of same, same, yeah. same, 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 yeah. same, same, same. It feels a lot easier to align yourself with it.
TikTok's fascinating to me. Rumor, a little birdie's told me they have a game company coming, but oh. yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, TikTok is just fascinating to me. But for UGC, I mean, there's the other source of really great UGC right now. But mm-hmm. like, I look at Manticore, like to me, you know, and not to pick on Manticore, those are a bunch of good dudes. But it's so hard to be in that middle ground. Like it costs nothing. Kids never have any money so they can go do anything they want in Roblox. Everybody has a phone. So you have no excuse not to shoot some little bit. Anyway, Brett, sort of a diversion, but I am no, I all in on TikTok. Yeah. Well, I feel the same way about YouTube. The other thing I like about it is how much it expands your mind, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. when you're watching TV, it's just kind of the same old stuff. When you get on YouTube, I mean, the algo just introduces me to the craziest stuff. Like I was been watching, I've been watching all this stuff about Formula One. And I think it applies to games is I think that the industry has somewhat evolved, particularly for the bigger companies that they do start need to start thinking much more strategically about what they can do that others can't. Yes, and absolutely. to your, to my earlier point is you get these people who are like, well, that's hard. It's like, yeah, but you're a $15 billion company. The only people that can do it is you, right? The only people that can do it are the company that's willing to go 17 years or the people who have millions of dollars to curate well, it. Or to, eight people and can just say, no, we're going to just do it this way. Or you're eight people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, dude, right? I went down, you know, I mean, I think I managed my biggest time when you and I worked together. I think I had a couple hundred people. And then at EA, I had, I don't know, probably around the same number. And hit is five smart people who can keep that vision and can build enough support corporately to get to make the thing they have a vision for, and then have 25 other smart people sort of help them execute that vision. I mean, my thesis for what it's worth in games is be flexible. Like Proteus is, is the main company and it was me for a while. And now there's eight of us. Everybody is basically either a designer or a product manager with an art director. That's all we are. The model is partner with somebody in our case, particularly in Eastern Europe or former Eastern Europe who we like, and then co-develop the game. But that's very intentional because it's find that strategic niche. And I have a very specific thesis that I'm following about mobile gaming tailored to work with Big Fish because you have to look at your partner's strengths. But it's this very, very specific approach to it because it's exactly that. Where do you have an advantage? In the situation you're in, how do you keep a thesis against 20 well-meaning people softening it and being able to use the strengths of whoever your partners are. I'll share Aristocrat is the parent company of Big Fish. And I met some of those folks because I worked with them for a year as we got to know each other. And they said something fascinating. I just had sort of asked them, well, because they went from being like the seventh biggest company in land-based slots to number one, and they were the small Australian company. And uh, their former creative officer told me something fascinating. I was like, well, what did you guys do? I was expecting some fairly general answer. And he said, well, we went out and said, who are the best slot makers and we went out and got like 20 of the 25. He didn't put it this way, but they're all bespoke. So one of those slot makers can make like a slot at a time. Another one can make three at a time. And they said, okay, who are people who have demonstrated success and let's go bespoke with them. And I think games are the same way, right? There's a huge advantage to refining what you're already good at, but it's really that I think it's being small and focused and brutal before you expand. And what do you mean by bespoke? Can you clarify that for me? In the sense of, it's not like, um, and not to pick on EA, but EA sends to, well, we buy a studio. Zynga, we did it this way. As you buy a studio, it works like this. Here are the structures we want you to follow. One thing Aristocrat said is, it depends on the person. So like I came to them and I was somebody with a good track record of making successful games and being a good, you know, having demonstrated success and sort of good insight into trends and set up an arrangement that honestly, I, you know, it was because they were open to it that I worked with them. Because it was like, we're going to take somebody with a lot of experience, basically be sort of pseudo second party, 
Because pseudo second party is a great place to be, right? Because you have more flexibility and everybody has the ability to scale up and down. You don't have that problem of you've got to feed 40 people, right? Because it's hard not to feel responsible. You're going to be like, I'm going to do the thing that takes care of all my people. Whereas if you're dealing with second parties and people have other projects, it scales up and down. It's logistically complex, but it lets you be much more nimble and much less pot committed because it's people just can't help but chase an investment in something where it's hard not to throw good money after bad. And what was fascinating about Aristocrat and Big Fish is, you know, we built that trust together working for a year where it's a different kind of relationship because our interests are fully aligned, but they're not identical, right? So the way it works is I sort of do stuff at the way that is a break even, but we're basically chasing hits together. And then the partner studios that I mentioned, you know, I did something that I think is non-standard as well, which is we're profit sharing essentially with them. And that's just built in. And so the nice thing is it aligns everybody to chase a hit um, because I think a classic experience in games, every game company I've been at, Big Fish thing is different, was once something gets momentum, it's very hard to stop it because there are 60 people on it. It's on the business plan. All this stuff is, it's very hard to say this thing isn't working well, or you know what, we're going to take a while and look at these different opportunities or, oh, someone else has claimed this. I'm sure Brett, you remember some of that at Zynga, someone would sort of grab something and say, this is mine and no one else could go after it. But keeping this fluidity lets you sort of get just enough to see if people like it because you can learn so much. Playtest Cloud is an invaluable tool. Liquid and Grit, one of your guys' best services is your ability to sort of utilize a whole bunch of folks. All over. I mean, you were sort of COVID before COVID was cool in, ten, in terms of how you're recruiting all your normal users. That's a very powerful approach because it keeps you honest in a way, and it keeps you from getting too fixated on thinking about what I've already done. Just because you've worked on something for nine months, don't keep going if the, if it's bad, right? Don't get hung up on that and go reality check. I mean, you guys do a brilliant job of finding people who are not, they're not, they're going to give you a relatively straight answer. People in a focus group, I mean, you can get a straight answer, but they're tending to be positive. I mean, you have figured out, and I won't give anything away on the call, some very clever ways to make it, to be able to do that kind of bespoke, thoughtful work in a way that doesn't re, it doesn't create that echo chamber because your people don't care and you care, but you care because you're giving an honest opinion and you can tailor it up or down. Is that making sense? I feel like I've gone on for a while. I hope it's holding Yeah. Together. When you're in a large organization, it's so hard to be innovative. Like, And this is similar, I think, to what you're saying, because- Innovative ideas are going to be the ideas that when you tell 50 people, 25 of them are going to say that's ridiculous. And then you've got all these forces that go into designing a feature or a game, right? You yeah. want the CEO to be happy and you want the game designer to be happy. You don't want to step on too many toes. All those things are now making compromises. You're basically getting closer and closer to the mean of design. Yeah. The best example of this is if you ever named a child, you think of a name, you think of a name and you go, oh, this is such a great name. It's so unique. Go online and look at the trend of that name and you'll be blown away to find out that your unique little name is now on the massive uptick. Yeah. And what happens yeah. is you name your kid like Zexton and he lands in kindergarten and there's five Zextons in class with him. And you're like, how the heck did that happen? I don't know how Zexton. And it's because all these forces are getting applied to your brain. And what you think of as a unique idea ends up being this basically non-unique idea. And so the more people that you basically round up to create an idea, the more likely you're going to get to this idea that's kind of a similar idea to everyone else's. And I think you're somewhat talking about that was when you're in these large organizations, you may start out with this innovative, cool idea that if you stay strong to it, you're probably going to get fired. So what you do is you start compromising, you start compromising, and then all of a sudden it's basically just a little bit different than 
the last game you produced, right? So you strip away all those logistical things and then you can kind of stay true to your thesis. And that's why the startup model works, right? That's why you don't see Uber coming out of Google, right? You see it coming out of one guy who's got this idea and is going to stay true to it. And you've like logistically basically- You can't, I think it's very difficult to succeed unless you have it, but there are 10,000 stupid ass startups for every one that turns into a unicorn. I agree with what you're saying. Too much groupthink gets it. But like in my own case, I, the current company is somewhat different, but like I never joined stuff before an A because the risk reward was just too out of whack, right? So like one of the unfair advantages I want is I want someone funneling those 10,000 ideas and then how can I do my own twist on it? I don't care what the other people around me are saying on that, but I also, okay, using the design thing, there are 2 million games on the app store coming with my weird one. I would much rather sort of hunt within saying, here are a bunch of ideas. I see traction here, I see traction here, but not having to just pull that crazy idea out of your head. Like the Roblox games, which ones work? Let a thousand kids try a bunch of things and see which ones start to work and then figure out how you're going to do your take on it, your better version of it, your mix of a couple genres. Not letting people around you tell you what to mix, but like I am not a believer in the blank page. I'm not a believer. It's just because someone has a good idea, bet it all and go do that. I think you've got to be much more, I think much more cold-blooded than that. Well, what you're talking about is that core thesis, which I really like, right? And I don't see that enough when I talk to people who are starting gaming companies. And But it's like, well, we're just going to throw out a couple of games. And I'm like, well, dude, I mean, the <laughs> well, odds I of that I hitting. companies like that. Exactly. And I'm sort of like, dude, have a core thesis. Like you think this market, I'll give you examples. Like you think, the word apps, for example, I've always found to be a category where games mm-hmm. pop out of nowhere. Like they can grow just massively fast due to their virality. Okay, go into there and do 10 hypotheses around that, you know, but they'll be like, well, I do, I have a casual one, I have a word one. You're basically just three shots in the dark in different. Exactly. You got to limit the risk. out of a hat instead of something from a thesis. Right. Like I have exactly. A very, very specific thesis. I mean, I can say, using Zynga versus EA, uh, Roblox is a very different animal. At Zynga, we won because we were better at distribution. We saw games that were working. We made our version that we rapidly could make better than other people. But we won because Mafia Wars beat Mob Wars because we got more traffic faster on Facebook. It wasn't that Mafia Wars was magically better. Zynga won at first because it got distribution. We were better at getting traffic on the platform before Facebook tightened up. And along the way, I think Mike Verdue is who I would point to as the credit half of the people he bought were good, which is a great ratio for buying stuff. So we had distribution advantage and then we were capable of making good product. And I think we started to fall apart later because I used to call it, I loved it. All these guys who had come in from EA were, whose asses we'd just been kicking for three years were like, no, 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 no. Let me tell you how to make a game. <laughs> yeah. Now what's interesting is I know Frank Jabot, like the leadership now, and Frank's a very smart guy, yeah. um, came in and what they did is they took EA's real model, which is let's go buy premium, pay full price, and then be professional about how we deliver it. Because Zynga's yeah. growth in the last three years, I believe, I'm almost certain, is overwhelmingly buying Graham, the merge gang. It's been a story of excellent acquisition. That, to me, is the entire story of Zynga's market cap tripling. That is actually the EA thesis. So Zynga started as winning a distribution, started being a sucky EA, and later came back to being a good EA, which is go buy premium and make sure everything you do is at least a B plus. Right. I think it's hard for EA. The thing about EA is I think they might disagree. There are very few A plus games that EA has that they didn't buy, but they very rarely put out something that's not at least a B. You know, they're not going to mess up your high quality IP. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been a valid model. The problem is the margins suck, but it's a relatively good business. They've also taught people like Marvel and Star Wars how to do it, where you just pay your share and that, that way Marvel doesn't care. It's like whatever it is, 15 or 20 percent. Um, and that's a valid model for getting audience because people already like that thing. But you still have to have all the resources on it. I mean, I can only think of a few games that come in and are revolutionary in an interesting way. I mean, you look at Fortnite, it's a really good version of somebody else's game. You see where it comes right. from. And that's okay. Let's not pretend to be more than we are. There were some companies when Zynga was there that, you know, were too clinical. It's you don't want it. You're not going to make a game by which of 200 shades of blue tests a half a percentage point better. So there's yeah. this tricky left brain, right brain balance. So, I mean, I have a very specific thesis about where opportunities can be. My conclusion is if you want to make interesting money in mobile for a living, you need a publisher. That's my own opinion, because the acquisition is just so unbelievable. I mean, trying to get lightning in a bottle being one of those one in 1,000 games that gets traction on its own, a great business if you want to do it for fun. Do it as your hobby. Do it as your side thing. Awesome. I would never, ever, ever give somebody money to start a business like that because it's just too hard. Even if you're great at making games, so what? Unless you have some distribution play, which I think I think is That's what we'll it. see. I think yeah. it's what we'll see because of what's going on in IDFA and everything right now. I. I think you're going to see the next, I mean, we know Bill Gelpie well, and I'm trying to get him on the podcast, but the, mm-hmm. the Rocket Games play, right? They had a distribution. They did ASO right. on Android. That was classic distribution play. Right? And it was a distribution play until they figured out a product to make that was going to make the money, right. which was Viva Slots. In five years, they <laughs> sold it for $160 million or whatever they did. And then right? it crapped out like four months later when Google changed the rules, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's not to pick on them. No, no I, mean, I mean, no, it's not. The but I think is a safe distri- yeah. if you see a distribution advantage. You can win. There are a couple sitting there right now i know of a couple that i just are right in front of me that i would chase if i had more bodies this is a mathematical uh model right of gaming you have enough people competing for there's big enough purses for the winner and the risk is low so it's just a matter of time before someone finds a different way to distribution i mean hyper casuals was basically distribution play 100%. Right. I mean, so it's sort of like a good example of it. And I think the main point is that the industry has been somewhat in the beginning thought of as product, product, product. Right. And I think that it's matured to the point where if you're going to go into it with just the idea that you're going to create a great product, it's high, highly risky. I mean, highly, highly right. risky. That's not a career. That's yeah. A and and the, and the best case scenario is you make a game, it blows up and you sell it. So you're talking about a three-year window where you're going to make a game blow up and, and you get bought by Zynga for $100 million and you retire if that's what you want to do. I don't have to make games. You know, I've guessed right twice on Zynga and Roblox and I've made plenty of money at other places, but it's fun making games. I'm not going to bet my house that I can make a game without distribution. Distribution plays are winners. There are a couple indirect ones but it's risk tolerance. The other side of that is if you go in, if you think it's purely product, you're not, I profoundly skeptical of that. I will say the flip side is I spent years getting good enough at design because if you're not good enough at games, it's hard to make something good. And if you aren't good enough at making games yourself, it's hard to know who's good at making games. That sounds like a tautology, but it's not. Like for me, it took me about eight years. I'd been someone who loved games when I was a trial lawyer. It took me about eight years to really start to understand it. It took me really, I would say, 14 years to get really good at making them. It just takes a long time. You have to play a lot of games. Like that, you came onto poker in part because you'd been an elite athlete and you weren't that big a nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Because poker is all about poker. You could do that. Yeah. I grew up playing card games my whole life, too. Right. I mean, my family was Canadian, farm, cribbage, every single card game. 
you've ever thought of. I totally agree. Had I joined and landed at Cityville or Farmville, my career much it would have been much, much different. But I did say mm-hmm. I want to be on Zynga Poker for that reason. But I can remember being like, I don't know anything about these other mechanics when they were talking about crafting and, and everything else. And they're not like, rocket science. The thing about games, and I learned, we were actually fooled by a false positive. John Tian, who was not a gamer, just turned out to just have exceptionally good insight into games. And so I hired a number of people and put them on teams that were the wrong team for them because they didn't have that depth of game. What I found actually for me, a sweet spot was a bunch of consultants who were serious gaming nerds who knew a ton about games, were very smart, were good at breaking stuff down. Guys like John Liu, Ian Wang, um, a lot of those folks were very effective because they coupled that sort of analytical rigor, which I think Zynga was spectacular at, but they'd also put in 20 years of playing stuff. It's not that you need that to have a success in games, but if you want to be, I would certainly say if you want to have a career in games and be serious about it, you're not going to be a good decision maker unless you've played a lot of games, paid attention, and been humble about it. Because the audience will tell you what they don't like. Players will tell you what they don't like. You cannot trust them to tell you what they actually want. The elegant thing with a game thesis is you have to see the thesis, but then you have to make something good. This is not like internet backbone where you're like, I'm just going to pick the thing that is a good solution and that has high switching costs. So I'm never going to change it. But like, that seems like a very rational, like, does it do this? It's a very objective decision as to which thing is better with games. I mean, I can name very similar games to each other and one's fun and one's not. And individuals may differ, but the majority of people will agree. And what's interesting about games is because there are so many thousands of small decisions, there has to be, you have to have that experience inferential background as well as that analytical background. It's really that left and right brain development to be successful in the long term. If you're particularly good at one, you need to at least be decent at the other one, I think, if you want to be a decision maker and not an employee. There's just so much, Bill. There's just too much. (laughs) It's just too much. But I I agree. I mean, I've talked about this on other podcasts. I benefited from my father being an artist, growing up in an art, but then also have the analytical background. I think that it's huge. And because too many times I hear people say, well, just test it. And it's like, well, you can't test every single decision. No, exactly. Put in this game. Mm-hmm. It's going to cost forever. It's going to be so costly. It's going to cost. And it's not going to work. It. And I find that too, just in the gaming industry in general, relative to, for example, my wife who's in consulting. I mean, they meet all day and they discuss and da, da, da. She's like, well, what do you do? I'm like, at the end of the day, you release a game and it does well or not. And I'm giving advice to people who are doing that. So it doesn't matter if they like me or not like me or meet with people or I have a connection or I've worked with them for 10 years. If I'm giving them bad information and then they release it, they're going to know. And they're not going to care that they have this relationship with me. She's like, oh, you got to form relationships. I'm like, yeah, that helps. That helps me get in the door, but it doesn't help me. Yeah, it's right not opens that. doors. King hired me to start a studio because I'd been right about Galaxy of Heroes. They were they thought skills was interesting, and because I'd been at Zynga, not because they thought I was the most fun guy. I mean, and you're right. And like your business is a perfect example. The relationship might get you the first chance, but it doesn't matter if you're right. A lot of people will use you, especially yeah. for you because you're literally, you know, liquid and grit. You're there to sort of offer a dispassionate opinion on a thesis, right? And it's you better, the more right you are, everybody then clamors for him. I mean, that's been your experience in the last few years, right? Yeah. And I, and I think um, the other thing about design that I think is so important that we touched on a little bit, making decisions about what you invest in in the game, I think is so crucial and is somewhat overlooked. And a great example of that is what we talked about with TikTok, which is content quality, right? 
so many times when you get someone who doesn't have a lot of experience in games, they think, oh, if we make a high quality game, it'll work, right? If we, mm-hmm. a classic example is redesigning the lobby of Zynga Poker or something like that, right? <laughs> like if we make it look pretty, it'll make the how metrics go audience, up. How to lose half yeah. your audience. Like <laughs> exactly. How to invest in a three quarter project that's going to drop your revenue by 20% is make your lobby look prettier. And it's a great example of when we see a lot of companies come in, I think huge casino is a great example of this. Like they just doubled down on social. And if you look at the game, you're like, wow, man, there's some things that don't fit. The, the, the text is like wrapping it's around the header. Yeah. It's like all these, their slot machine mechanics aren't great. They're super simple. It's like the same, but they were just like, we're doubling down on social. That's mm-hmm. our thesis. Our thesis is people want more social, even deeper social and clubs and collaboration, everything else we're going to be super disciplined about. And I, in some ways, I'm like that with Liquid and Grit, where people are like, well, why don't you go to conferences and why don't you do this? And why is it? it's like, dude, I do one thing really well and that's what I have time for. And I think game design is like that. And if you don't know games, then I think you don't have that answer, right? You don't have the answer to exactly. that for this genre, for whatever genre it is. It's like for Mafia Wars or for RPG or whatever. This is the most important thing. And it's not universal. Right. It's not the same for words, games or it is. No, it's not the same. That's that. I call it the MBA master flaw. You can't be a great manager of everything. Right. You just can't. It's silly. You need domain specific knowledge. I'll say a a point on this is you can get good at games. A smart person who plays games and asks questions, you can get good at them. If a game's very popular, you don't understand why it's your fault, not theirs. Design Home, for example, is a game that people have undervalued for years. Design Home and Covet Fashion. Those games should have had so much more competition. I'm not chasing those two. I am convinced it's because a bunch of dudes looked at it and it was like Pinterest. Dudes, it's just a whistle that dudes don't hear, right? Um, they're like, what? It's just a game about fashion. Let's look at something else. Yeah. Like, oh, you guys don't understand. Eight years later, the thing's still growing. How many dudes have ever been on Pinterest? Go tell me what's good about Pinterest to a dude because it's notoriously, and I don't know its exact numbers, it's notoriously like 90% female. In finding your niche and in finding your thesis, it's also looking at the places that you wouldn't think of to look, like Pinterest, or mm-hmm. looking at the places where you don't understand the audience. You just have to be curious, you know? Right. You have to have the taste level to understand that this is working and be curious about it. I think that's a great point, Katie. And I would go a step further. I would say if you see something working that's weird that you don't understand, that is a huge potential opportunity. Because you understanding, well, why the heck do people like Pinterest? You know, why is Covet Fashion such a successful game? And Covet Fashion is fascinating to me because in many ways, it's an evolution of Mob Wars, Mafia Wars, to uh, Vampire Wars, to Sorority Life. You know, it sort of came out of that thread, but they've made it so much better. Yeah, I love, that's exactly why TikTok is so fascinating to me because it's created this emotional response to me that's very unusual. Um, yeah, it's like you're taking the ego out of it in a lot of ways because- yeah. You're not saying this will work because you're like, I am seeing this works and I don't know why. So I'm going to go yes. and chase why after. Why is this working? Is it this? Try something. Is it this? Try something. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is very much it. And then, so using, like, I think of it as with my little team, I'll take input as to what strategy we follow. We will together decide how to make a great game. The strategy, that's the decision I'm not going to give away. I hate game jams at companies where they're like, what's our next game going to be? Because then people feel bad because they all get excited about an idea that you're not going to let them make. On the other hand, when you have an idea of the game you want to make, you're like, I'm going to make a game of something like this. Then I passionately care what everybody else thinks because often those opportunities are not games that resonate as well with me. Like, 
of the three prototypes, one I love, I would love, love to show it to you because it relates to cards. I love that game. And I may not make it. And the other ones, you have to find a way to like them. But there are people who already like them who you have access to. And you want to hear what they think. And you want to figure out in one of the ones that we're working on right now. I know the thing I've always hated about that genre that I'm trying to fix. But I also want to make sure I'm balancing with things that people love about that genre and not leading it too far. So, yes. And I, the way I say it is if everybody thinks it about your game or a game, they're right. So if you love your demo and everybody plays it and they don't like it, they're right if everybody says that. If you do something, some game you don't understand, but everybody likes it and it's getting popular, they're right. And it's that counterfactual. I mean, I'm convinced that most startups, there is a fundamental skepticism that I think is very effective in Silicon Valley. Something sucks or something works. I don't know why. What is going on? How can that be taken and made into an opportunity, typically for business purposes, but even socially? And I think think you learn this lesson in games because you get so many reps, right? Which is that... The quote I always say, the more I work in this industry, the less likely I think my intuition is going to be right. And I thought that expression was just great because the perfect example is when Clubhouse was getting huge. I mean, I was looking at it and being like, this is, I I can't stand this. It's just bothersome to me. I'm trying to get my work done. But I can remember talking to the CEO of Merca and I said, well, this is probably a good indication that it's going to be successful because I'm not on Twitter. I can't, same thing as Twitter. So it's like, just because I think it's a terrible idea and I'll never use it, actually to me is somewhat of an indication that it might be a good, a good and a big because success. Because you're seeing people use this thing enthusiastically and it grow that you don't understand. Right. Yeah. That's so it's like, deta- but you wouldn't have cared detaching about that weren't growing and people weren't bugging you to join it. Right. right. Yeah. Right. But it's like detaching your own opinion and thought or preferences from your knowledge of product is what makes it you have a great product manager and then the ability to see somewhat next yeah. big things is just, I mean, I always tell the story about Zynga poker, you know, new GMs would join and they would tell me, have you tried real world prizes? And they'd come over to me and I'd be like, yeah, we tried it and it sucked. And all they said is I yeah. want more chips. I don't need another house, right? Exactly. I don't want another car. Yeah. I have one, right? Yeah. It's just like, or the $1 package. And we've said this on the podcast before, which is like, yeah, this is ridiculous. We, we want a thousand dollar package. Try that. And they're like, what? Who pens a thousand dollars? I'm like, exactly. A lot of people, well, Mafia right? Wars had its wire transfer program. I always loved that. Oh, yeah. That was a great one, right? <laughs> to me, there are three theses about how, if you want a career in games, it's successful. And one of them is bad <laughs> and one of them is hard. So I think you can either be awesome as an individual contributor in some capacity. You can be excellent at operating live services, or you can be very good at seeing strategic opportunities, getting good at them and following through. Being excellent as an individual contributor, that's wonderful. Go be a dev. If you work in games, great. You are at the mercy of whether you happen to work with smart people. Operating live games, stuff that's already successful, your manager, that's a very good business. You can be good at it. You can make a very good living. That's hard because it's okay. Did you grind poker up 5% this quarter? Can you find another 5% next quarter? And then the third one is getting the opportunity and guessing right often enough to make a living to find that strategic window. Now, there are ways to help form that strategy. You should not just make it up out of your head. You can watch carefully. If you do that, that's where it's transformative, but it's hard to do it. And you're going to have to do one or the other two to have a chance to do that. One last thing, if I can say it, because I think we probably have to wind up. If, If the point of this, I would suggest to me, there are three theses about how if you want a career in games, it's successful. And one of them is bad (laughs) and one of them is hard. So I think you can either be 
awesome as an individual contributor in some capacity. You can be excellent at operating live services, or you can be very good at seeing strategic opportunities, getting good at them and following through. Being excellent as an individual contributor, that's wonderful. Go be a dev. If you work in games, great. You are at the mercy of whether you happen to work with smart people. It's fine. Do that. That's the hardest way to be successful because you better be in the top half a percent. Operating live games, stuff that's already successful, you're a manager. That's a very good business. You can be good at it. You can make a very good living. That's hard because it's okay. Did you grind poker up 5% this quarter? Can you find another 5% next quarter? What about next year? What about three years from now? Are you developing enough people that when the inevitable churn happens, you can do it? A very good business. That's in many ways how you have the most success. But as an individual, it you're putting in, that's, I think, the hardest path. I don't know if you would agree with that. And then the yeah. third one is getting the opportunity and guessing right often enough to make a living to find that strategic window. Now, there are ways to help form that strategy. You should not just make it up out of your head. You can watch carefully. If you do that, that's where it's transformative, but it's hard to do it. And you're going to have to do one of the other two to have a chance to do that, right? I personally chose the path of learn how to do a live game, get better at strategy. Oh, looks like I might actually be good at strategy. Hey, guess what? I've guessed right on strategy a couple of times. I'm good enough that now I can do what I want. Doesn't mean I'm great. Doesn't mean I could have guessed wrong, but there was a conscious thing there. And even then it was still 50% luck or 60%. Or 70% luck. Had I not been at Zynga, Roblox would not have come to me. Had I not been at Roblox, it would have been hard to get to EA. Had I not been at Roblox and Zynga, it would have been hard to get the King thing, right? And Zynga was, I happened to go for a hike on the right weekend. If I'd gone two months later, I'm confident my career path would have been different. But that was the path there. It was get good at operating stuff that's successful, then improve its strategy. Oh, two more things. I cannot stress enough with games. It's a small industry. Don't be a dick. That stuff bites you. Treating people right, you'll be surprised. It's the right thing to do. Life is better. Life's too short to be a jerk. Yeah. And games is a small business. And it's your tiny. reputation and how you behave will follow you around. If you're in it for a while, you karma will treat you well or treat you badly, and it will be right. And then the third thing is life is too damn short. You're spending most of your time working. Find something that you like doing that can give you the level of economic success that makes you satisfied. I like games more than I did 20 years ago. It's still interesting to me every day. Every day I'm a little more interested, right? And I'm lucky because I happen to luck into it from a very unpromising random way into something that um, I was able to get some success at, make some money at, sort of meet my standards. But like, I still like it. It's still interesting to me every day. It's interesting once you start to get good at it. Usually you're getting good at it because you like it and you're getting curious and you're taking it apart. Even if there's parts of your life you hate, it's compelling and you still like doing it. Find something where, not that that's your whole life, don't make the mistake of believing that, but find something where you find it interesting and you're much more likely, I think, to be happy and successful. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And thanks again to Bill for coming on to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we can't wait to make more of them just like this one for you. So until then, here's a little something to close us out. So I'm curious, can we just, for fun, Katie, just for giggles, let's do, you know, what was it called? Desert Island Discs where you'd have to play the first five things in your iPod, no matter what they were. Yes. <laughs> let's do that for TikTok. I'll tell you mine. So there's somebody named Salty Kachina. Because of her, I now know how to make carnitas and good homemade tortillas. I bought one of those little presses. Home cooking Mexican food is delicious. It's about how to make good watermelon stuff. The second one is some dude called Ryan who does these great little bits about how marketing is used in behavioral psychology terms like names, stuff like that. The next one is some dude who it's websites to cure boredom. 
and it's stuff like watch free TV shows, drew, do a line drawing and have it turn into a photo. The next one is this dude who describes how to make surprisingly good looking movies with inexpensive equipment. And the fifth guy, my kid and I both love this, is a dude who's an ex-prisoner who tells stories about being in prison, from whom we've both learned the term bussin', which is apparently prison for awesome. All right, so I have people that are on a crab fishing boat showing you all the different ways that the waves affect physics. And so they're jumping really high or like showing you like when they swing from a rope, they're suddenly sideways just because of how intense the waves are. Okay. I have how different Dungeons and Dragons classes use a longbow. All right, I, Which, I have like five D&D ones. I have all of the different personas behind animated movies, soundtrack scores. And then lastly is Lucas T. Arnold, who just does a bunch of impressions of different comedians reciting Bible verses. 